0: everyone. Welcome to the Charbuck Podcast. This is your host Kushal Nehra. My guest today is Ashley Rinsberg and we're here to discuss his book, The Grey Lady Wink. Ashley, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Kushan.
0: Ashley, before we start discussing this book, I'll request you to uh, tell all the viewers of the podcast a little bit about yourself as this is your first time on the podcast. So could you please tell us a little bit?
1: Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me here. It's very exciting. Um, so I'm, I'm an author and a author of fiction, of nonfiction, of essays. Um, and in this particular case, um, of most recently a book called The Grey Lady Winged, which is about the New York Times and how its misreporting has changed history and continues to change history in a very radical way. And, um, and what that means for the world in which we live we live in a world that's mediated media is everything and and that's why this topic really spoke to me because uh we exist in online we exist on social media and you have players like the new york times having huge disproportionate influence on that reality uh, maybe in a way we've never quite seen before so that's why i took on this book and Um, I can continue to write on these topics about the New York Times, about media. I'm also continuing to write fiction, um, short stories, a novel that's coming toward the end of this year. And um, and having conversations like this one, most importantly.
0: All right. Actually, I want to actually start now our discussion, because uh, you just said New York Times is very important. So in your book, uh, I want to read a quote. You said, instead of understanding journalism as either a collection of neutral entities who process unassailable fact into truth or as partisan operators hacking away at an agenda, we should see the endeavors encompassing a spectrum of ideas and opinions that approximate or come close as possible to the truth. Now, let's start. uh, I actually want to start our discussion with a bit of a philosophical uh, question here that why does the truth matter? And if the truth matters, we are assuming it does because that's why you wrote this book and that's why you think New York Times is very important. So how, how do you think the role of the New York Times and uh, comes into place when we are discussing the, the entire edifice of truth itself?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Well, that's a great question. I mean, it's really a fundamental question. Um, idea about why the truth matters. And, you know, right now, I, I think we all recognize that there's power in truth. And so the truth always becomes political or politicized. And right now what we're seeing, at least in the U.S., probably to an extent in other places as well, is that people are starting to openly and actively reject the idea of the truth as an objective thing that's independent of human experience and human judgment and they're starting to advance the notion of truth as subjective for all and, and essentially political, which is what this debate we're seeing about critical theory and critical race theories. Critical theory says what's true is what promotes the liberation of oppressed people. So who decides what that is? The, the person who's dominant in that conversation. And the alternative notion is the classic notion of truth that there's something out there, we may not be able to have direct experience of the truth, we don't have divine experience of the truth, but we can sort of approximate, do our best to, together, collectively, collaboratively, to approximate it. So one view of the model of the truth, of finding truth, of, of epistemology, the, the philosophy of, of knowledge, says this is hierarchical, we're going to declare it. whether that's um, a Maoist approach or a Marxist approach or a critical theory approach that says what we say is true is true. And the other approach is saying, well, we don't necessarily know what's true. No one of us is going to be able to determine it. Together we can. It's a much more flat or horizontal approach. And I think that's where where the future is for, for the world in which we live is to say let's allow the truth to be flat. Let's not accept it handed down from an institution, whether that's the government or the New York Times or even the academy. But let's say, let's be open to ideas. Let's all question them together. Let's rather than having one edifice of, of a news giving organization, let's have a thousand. Let's have ten thousand or more. Decentralize it in, in, you know, the terms of um, advances in thinking in the world of crypto and blockchain. So I think that's why it matters so much because it's power and it's how we choose to wield power and how we understand the the morality, the ethics connected to that kind of power.
0: You know, I know it's going to be sounding weird, but I actually thought that I wanted to have our discussion where we go from the last chapter of your book and then we work backwards, is because it's very contemporary to what the truth is. I, it's, mm-hmm. I've always found this uh, this very weird scenario where New York Times uh, and you have written in detail in one of your chapters about how Nicole Hannah Jones and the uh, the the project that the New York Times, I, I think it's the sixteen nineteen uh, project. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that that's the project that they've been, you know, vociferously backing, funding, talking about, and and the interesting aspect of whether it's critical race theory or postmodernism is that you know if you're a student of philosophy and I know you have dabbled in philosophy, you have uh, studied philosophy, so so you're the best person to talk about this. I find this very fascinating. On one hand, they behave like relativists, where they say there is a meta narrative which is that america starts at a certain date and that is the date that we have been basically agreeing upon since x number of years but that is the uh, that is not the truth and we need to challenge that meta narrative is it because it is designed by people who have the power so that's the they they look at things from a power matrix and they say let more versions prosper but then i want to take you to you know now something you I love this line, which is and I think this is you perfectly summed up. This is in the introduction of your book where you said, uh, you know, journalism was supposed to be a rough draft of history. And what New York Times is striving to present is something of a crystallized final version. Don't you find it ironical that people who actually are relativists, actually, they're not relativists. They just want their version to be the final version. Right. Right.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, I think there is a notion of, I think relativism in and of itself lends towards that kind of agglomeration of power. It lends towards something that starts to resemble more and more a tyranny of thought and of ideas and values. Pluralism is something that says, that's a bit more of a step back where you have a pluralism of belief or ideology. I um, you can say together, okay, none of us has the monopoly here. We can, we can each believe in our own thing on our own turf and territory. And when it comes to common areas or your space, we'll allow that and kind of put a, put a little bit of a fence around our beliefs so we don't impose upon others. But that's, I don't think that's what relativism is. I think relativism is the tyranny of, of I, the tyranny of me, the tyranny of the ego that says my truth, not the truth separate from me. And I think that that's the the core folly of relativism because it's always attached to the me. And when you start putting the individual at at that kind of elevated position above the rest of a society or a community or a nation or whatever, then you start to have those kinds of problems that we're seeing in the U S where it's about my truth, not the truth that someone might find no matter whether he is white or black or Brown or anything else but just the truth that happens to be out there. And that's traditionally been the ideal of the U.S., which is to say, let's have a free, open, and flat society. That ideal has not always been met, for sure. I mean, the failings are huge. But I think that's not to say, let's throw out the ideal, the ideal of an open society, a flat society, where we can, we can value and respect one another's ideas because we believe there is such a thing as an objective truth because we all acknowledge together that we're equally fallible that we're equally unable to attain perfect truth so we said and that's something that comes from the jewish tradition which says you know people say well could you take wisdom from a someone who doesn't necessarily practice religion or maybe even someone that practices something that you might regard as forbidden but the jewish tradition has this saying which is emet emet the emet. Truth is truth. Whether it comes from me or my neighbor or a guy halfway around the world who does things that I, I don't really understand, if he's saying it's true, what if what he's saying is true, then I need to respect it because I've found his thinking to produce something valuable. But when truth has been politicized, then you have an opposite situation, which is that no matter what you said, if you're on the opposing side of the political aisle, I will regard it as false. And this is where divisiveness arises. And that's, again, what, what i am seeing in the U.S. And, and around the world.
0: Yeah, but, but in in such a scenario, where do you think New York Times fits into it? Because I find their role, like so the journey of your book. So if we start from the first chapter, that is, you know, the early days of the war, mm-hmm. right? We start from the war and the role the New York Times plays in the war. Even there... I think it's like uh, there are so many beautiful lines that you've used in the book where, uh, it's like, for example, you say, you know, uh, the New York Times is not a manufacturer or crafter of truth, as it sometimes seems to suppose itself, but a receptacle of it. It does not shape the truth. It is shaped by it. But do you think it is shaped by the truth or it's genuinely trying to shape the truth?
1: Both. It is, it is shaped by the truth. It is a vessel of truth. It cannot actually change the truth, but it does think that it can. It does think and act as if it determines the truth. And that's, the, that's where things become really uh, disastrous. That's where you have the New York Times in 1939 claiming that Poland invaded Germany in the of mm-hmm. World War II because they made decisions that were based in self-interest, and that's where I say relativism is always about the me. And at the New York Times, which is an institution that had charged itself with producing truth and which had been regarded that way by a very hierarchical, hierarchical American society, they came to a point where they understood that in their minds, their own self-interest was interchangeable with the truth. So when they they kept the, the Nazi collaborating... Berlin bureau chief at that time, a man named Guido Daris, in that position because it gave them a competitive edge. It was good for business. And if it was good for business, in their minds, well, that meant it was good for society too. That that That's where the corruption of the truth happens. And it always happens out of self-interest. I mean, I think that's the lie behind um, a lot of the extreme activist uh, positions that you see in journalism and also in other parts of society right now is that, The self-interest is always there. You just have to uncover it. And again, with the New York Times, that's the common thread, self-interest, where we see them shifting and contorting the truth in World War II, in Stalin's Russia, Cuba, Vietnam, the Iraq War, and as you mentioned, right up until today with the 1619 Project, which they have openly acknowledged as their most effective marketing tool, or one of them, one of their most effective marketing campaigns of the last five years. I mean, it was designed that way and it was pitched that way. And again, they have just tapped into an idea that kind of has an electric charge with their audience and they're using it to market their brand in a very brilliant way. So to think that it's just about the truth of American history is false. And we see that with the 1619 Project by the amount and the degree of the falsehoods that they published as part of the project in which they refuse to retract or correct in many cases it wasn't about the truth it was
0: about advancing the new york times's own agenda including their financial agenda so 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 let us now maybe get into a slightly uh, uh a slight more detail here so i, I want to focus on the war especially because honestly when i was reading that chapter i was left speechless i think like, they actually did that look i live in india i, I could care i'll be very honest Uh, new york times when it comes into my mental framework keeps a very low space because not that i rate it poorly i mean i do rate it poorly for other reasons because their uh, coverage of india just left me flabbergasted i was like which india are they talking about i don't understand it is almost as if we are living in two different worlds but the point is that i still felt that they must have been a newspaper of some standard so many people in america like it but could you share a little bit more detail with us about what were they basically reporting when, when they were saying? Like, you know, somewhere you say that they they made mistakes like getting the times, places, names, and even the events wrong. And uh, they were basically be- becoming puppet- I mean, I don't know. Pawns in the hands of the Nazi publications. So, so can you tell us a little bit about that because that really hit me to the extent that I was like, no, they can't do that.
1: Yeah. Well, they did do that. And, you know, I think that the reason why we might think that they are an esteemed, distinguished publication is because in many ways they really are, you, you know, that's to separate out from the ownership. The, the newspaper has been owned the company that owns the newspaper has been owned by a single family for over a century. It's a dynasty one of the most entrenched, powerful dynasties in America today, as it has been for a century. Um, And then there's the actual operational side of that newspaper. The reporters, the editors, the photographers, dedicated journalists, excellent journalists, people who are really at the top of their game at that newspaper, which is why it looks and feels so great, because they're the best. So there's a distinction there between the owners and the people who are manning the ship, so to speak. And when you look at the owners, that's where the things, that's where things are, tend to go wrong. And that's where the self-interest is exerted because it's exerted in the interest of the ownership of the, this owning family. So when we look back at World War II and how they covered, not just the outbreak of that war, but the lead up to it and how they basically cheerleaded for the Nazis. And I mean that in a literal sense. Of the Nazi Olympics in Berlin 1936 they declared it to be the greatest sporting event of all time it was known it was an acknowledged propaganda blitz by the Nazis that was that was taken as fact around the world and definitely in America and other journalists prominent journalists at the time not from the New York Times really lamented that the games were even allowed to proceed let alone that that they didn't that they were to celebrate them as an American. Uh, news organization. But the New York Times really celebrated those games. The New York Times really continued over and over again to reassure the public that Hitler was not that big a deal. He was not really that major of a threat. And when you zoom out and say, how can this all happen? And you see the man who was in charge of that operation in Berlin, the New York Times editor, and he was a Nazi collaborator. And you say, okay, well, that explains how that happened. But how was he put in place? How was he left in place? When they were alerted to his presence you would notice if a nazi collaborator was running your berlin bureau in the middle of a war or lead up to a war with the germans you would notice if there was a skew and i'm sure they did and it was brought to their attention by their own staff members and their response was to sue the whistleblower to slap him with a libel suit because the coverage they were getting out of berlin was so good the sources were so top-notch and that's because the Nazis love this guy. They gave him the best sourcing. They gave him the best access because he published stuff that they love to hear from an American newspaper. And again, it comes back to them wanting to maintain their number one position in the market, to be the very best newspaper with the very best scoops, which gave them more syndication, more distribution, a bigger readership, more financial gain, more power, and more prestige. And that's what it always comes back to. That circle always closes on each of these episodes.
0: Yeah but the shocking bit is the the one thing the, the the consistent line that I've seen throughout the book is the the amount of pulitzer prize winners that were doing this. It's it's as if every time it's 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 it's, it's, a, it's a circular problem. You prop up someone for pretty much peddling rubbish. Mm-hmm. You create these loops then how do you create create legitimacy for these people? Well, they did fantastic work. Let's give them a Pulitzer Prize. Then somebody comes and questions that person. They're like, are you going to question someone with a Pulitzer Prize? So, so what the hell? Uh, was, do you think this was like a well-planned strategy to create some sort of legitimacy? I, you know,
1: I, I think yes. The, the simple answer to that question is definitely, absolutely. Is it, was it a, um, you know, Explicitly thought of as a as a coordinated effort to legitimize what might not be legitimate. I don't think it was on the surface thought of that way, but I think it's an ecosystem. And it's an ecosystem that grew up in that grew in a very small geographic and, and intellectual sphere, that being New York City, um, and just a small portion of New York City of you know maybe fifty blocks in Manhattan. All these people know each other. Whoever's on the committee of the Pulitzer prize. They know the people are running the New York Times. They know the editors that are at uh, Columbia University. They know that it's an ecosystem that supports itself. It protects itself. It's it's almost like a a, a colony of an organism. Um, And that's how that works. And you're exactly right in how you how you've identified how that ecosystem functions. The Pulitzer Prize is the stamp of approval from the king. It's the, the king's seal. And once that stamp has been applied. Now that thing, no matter how problematic, how flawed, how outright wrong it was, is already given that kind of gloss of credibility. And, and the glo- the word gloss is interesting because it almost functions like a lacquer, like you would lacquer wood or put some kind of seal on a wood and it makes it harder to scratch the wood. It makes it harder to damage that wood. And that, that's what happened, for example, the 1619 project, which is extremely flawed. I mean, we're talking so flawed that multiple sets of preeminent historians in America have penned letters together to oppose the project, to demand that it's either be retracted in its entirety or corrected in a huge degree. And yet, it was awarded a Pulitzer Prize after all that happened. And that Pulitzer Prize is just like you've identified the stamp seal of approval. And and that is how it functions. It functioned with um, many of the writers from the Berlin bureau in the 1930s, including the one who called the Nazi Olympics the greatest sporting event of all time, he was given a Pulitzer for that reporting. Um, Walter Duranty, who famously denied the Ukraine famine and covered it up, was given a Pulitzer. Um, David Halberstam, who inserted himself into Vietnamese politics during the Vietnam War to disastrous effect, was given a Pulitzer. It goes on and on and on and on. And part of the reason is because the New York Times has more Pulitzer prizes than any other newspaper in the world. It has twice as many than its next closest competitor. So, when people say, why the New York okay, the New York Times might have its share of problems, maybe they're even egregious, but why focus only on them? Why not CNN? Why not Washington Post, et cetera? I'm like, yes, that's true. It's all part of the broader ecosystem, but the New York Times is the real flagship. They wield power and prestige in a way that nobody else does. And that's, again, why I, I focused on them as emblematic of the broader media
0: system you know what the m- most fascinating bit about this is that the lack of transparency now whether it's in the case of uh of, you know the Berlin bureau chief being a nazi sympathizer but the one that blew me the most was the japanese case where that man was basically working with the american <laughs> government and he was yeah. basically completely in cahoots with them yes. and he's on, on the one side, he is literally doing science. <laughs> and on the other side, he's reporting the same thing. Now, mm-hmm. oh, I, I always thought journalism was always about, oh, I don't want to be very close to the politician because I don't want to be very friendly to a politician or the government in power is. Otherwise, I cannot question them. Now, obviously, I've been a firm believer that uh, I don't know about politics, uh, politics uh, beyond. uh, I'm not saying I'm a novice to American politics. I do understand it. But I've noticed this trend. Left-wing politics always claims to be neutral. I I have seen this trend in left-wing politics across the world. They have this obsession with neutrality. Now, I'll be very clear. I'm not a neutral person. I, I believe human beings cannot be neutral. I believe human beings can be indifferent at times. Like I, I could be indifferent to certain things in my life because I don't have a very good opinion about that subject. If you ask me, I'll give an opinion, but I would say it is an ill-informed opinion. But I, I don't know how people can be neutral. So what and the whole premise for neutrality stems from the fact is because we want to be the monopoly holders of the truth. While we might say the truth is relative, we actually don't believe the truth is relative. We actually want to make the truth our truth. In such a scenario, you have a case where the person, like, what shocked me was that you're going in that plane that's going to bomb the living daylights out of someone and you have someone sitting inside there. How the hell can they get away with something as atrocious as that? They should be, their publication should be stopped. For that very thing, if you ask me.
1: Yeah, that that was um, particularly egregious, especially because it you know there were more effects afterwards, and and that situation is that um, the Times' science writer, a man named William Lawrence, in the um, the nineteen thirties, was a brilliant brilliant man. He was an immigrant to the U.S. Um, I think from Hungary. He quickly ascended through the top. of American education system and became this just really pioneering, innovative science writer. He was on top of these trends months, years before the government was. He was writing about uh, advances in nuclear technology. um, And he was following it. He was really bringing that exciting field to the world and getting closer and closer to splitting the atom. Um, And then he suddenly stopped, went silent. And aside from like some humdrum reporting on like vitamins and whatnot. And you, you, if you were a reader of his, you would say, what happened? Where did he, you know, he was writing about this exciting stuff about splitting different molecules um, that, that resulted in huge amounts of energy being released. And, and then he's talking about vitamin D. And what it turned out was that, as you were mentioning, he was in cahoots to use your words. He was collaborating, colluding um, via the New York times, it wasn't something he would be able to organize with the U.S. government, and the trade-off was he would get the one and only non-military seat on the bombers on the on the, the bombing run run that was going to drop the second bomb, atomic bomb, on Japan. And in exchange for this unprecedented access, they they would cooperate with the government on propaganda, and part of that propaganda was to deny that the atomic bomb produced radiation poisoning. It was to deny that there was such a thing as radiation poisoning, that the only damage was caused by the blast itself. And the government knew that was false. This brilliant science writer named William Lawrence definitely would have known it was false. And other reporters on the ground who were reporting what was happening after the bomb saw with their own eyes that it was false. But he denied, the New York Times as well, denied there was such a thing as uh, as radiation poisoning. People died afterwards. People died when the U.S. continued to test nuclear weapons on population centers, not big ones, like the Marshall Islands, but there were people there and who had homes there, who had livestock there, who had children there. And that's exactly a direct result of what happened. And, you know, how, how did they get away with it is they, their power is that great that the, the credence that we lend them, the credibility that we all give them through our collective belief, through the creation of a social construct that is the myth of the New York Times keeps them propped up. And the leverage that they have in the real world, in the market, for example, with the bestseller list, the New York Times bestseller list is the world's greatest book marketing tool. And if the New York Times today doesn't like you, they won't put you on the list. They acknowledge it to be an editorial property. It's not something that is strictly run by the numbers. It's an editorial decision that's made who's on the list based on a number of factors, including sales. And nobody wants to take that risk of saying, wait a second, we're going to hold you into account because they're too powerful. The risk is too great.
0: Yeah, Isn't it fascinating? It's actually working like, uh, I don't know how to say, a dictatorship, a communist dictatorship?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a top-down intellectual power structure, which definitely, in that regard, represents that kind of regime. To so say if today I tell you it's Tuesday, tomorrow I tell you it's Thursday, then t- today is Tuesday, and tomorrow is Thursday, and that's exactly what happened with the 1619 project when I mean, they said they claimed the 1619 project that the American Revolutionary War was fought to preserve slavery, and the the historians that they themselves kind. Of um, that they themselves sought out for fact-checking on this topic said, actually, no, that's not true. They said it anyway, because what mattered was, was what they asserted. And that's the relativism come to bear, where we see it again. Said it's true for us. It's true because we we in our value system believe it to be true. Therefore, it's true. And I, you know That's the relativism at work.
0: Yeah. And what I find fascinating in this entire process is that the New York Times is... It's almost like the Indian bureaucrat that governments come and go. The Indian bureaucrat is just sitting there and always saying that, look, you will come and go in five years. I'm here forever. To me, the New York Times actually thinks and functions like that, that it's actually not you who wields the power. It's I who wields the power and I can draw grand narratives for you. But do you think New York Times has delusions of grandeur? Um,
1: yes and no, because on the one hand, yes, they, they, they are, they, they do believe their role to be more important than it is because the reality is that no one is bigger than the truth, no matter how big you are. And that's something that autocratic regimes show us all the time. They think that they can impose the truth on a people, but they, in the end, they cannot. And and it always fails that, that project, but in another sense, they don't have delusions of grandeur because they are that powerful. You know, They, they're the every single U.S. president, I think since Harry Truman, with the exception only of Donald Trump, up, upon taking office, sends them a signed, uh, it's either a letter or a photograph, I'll have to go, go back and look, but every single American president sends that letter to the publisher of the New York Times. There is no other newspaper that that happens with. That doesn't happen with no other news organization, probably no other company out there maybe maybe a very few you know gigantic multinational companies that are in involved with national security but that level of power is truly distinctive i mean it, it and it does give the times this exalted position where you can go to the corners of the world and say the new york times and someone will say oh okay yeah i know that i know that name but you cannot really do that with another newspaper in america and that kind of power it is a kind of grandeur and it's not delusive, but there is an element of it which saying we're bigger than the truth, that, that certainly is a delusion. And when they act as if they're bigger than the truth, more powerful than than that independent idea of truth, then they are acting, they are li- existing with a, an illusion of grandeur.
0: So, so you you actually used a very interesting word in the book. Uh, I, I think you called... Uh, so you use the analogy of folk psychology, and you said uh, New York Times practices <laughs> folk journalism. That, that was very interesting. Where, uh, where, what, what, so, so, what you say is they don't rely on data or investigation to arrive at conclusions or to make a connection between things, but it is more driven by personal intuition. But, but, but. Uh, I mean, obviously you made it as a passing reference, but I actually want to talk about that. I want to talk Mm -hmm. about folk journalism because it's a brilliant term. It's as if, you know, uh, I'll say what I want to say. I'll first decide what I want to say and Mm -hmm. then I'll look for facts and then I'll start, you know, kind of fitting them and narrating them. And and if I don't find the facts, I'll just pull them out of my ass anyway. So (laughs) which which is the case with that uh, journalist that you talk about who was writing those... uh, war stories right about soldiers yeah. and war stories yeah. but but the, so so let's talk about this folk journalism so what, can you elaborate a little bit more about this because i i love this term that you've used folk journalism
1: yeah yeah thank you um I, and that that kind of just struck me when i was th- this was in dealing with um the new york times' coverage of soldiers us soldiers returning from iraq and afghanistan and the times was trying to sort of paint this picture of these these men and women who were mostly the men, really, who were becoming homicidal homicidal maniacs. They're going out and committing all these crimes, uh, violent crimes against people. And when you looked at the data, and I mean the data that they provided, the, the sourcing that they were using, you were seeing, and if you just run the numbers very quickly, like it doesn't, it really takes almost nothing to, to do those numbers. You see that they were committing, soldiers were committing crimes at a lower rate than the general population. And they're using these same figures to show, to try to make a case that these guys are coming back so damaged that they're killing people around them. And it's like they they basically just took this notion of, oh, okay, I know, I've seen all the documentaries and and the movies, and I know that generally that men coming back from violent war come back with PTSD, they come back broken psychologically, emotionally, therefore, they must be committing these crimes of some sort. I mean that how that's the most broken some can be, and that's probably going on. So let's paint this picture, and they they went to such great lengths to paint that picture that they used data that actually ca- countered their own claims, um, and and that's something that you can see widely in the media. I mean this was a particularly egregious case, um, but you see that over and over and over, which is that. Like, just as you're saying, the, the journalist goes into this, to the story saying, oh, wow, th- this would be a cool story. And then they go out and write it. And that's what happened, for example, with Cuba, where the Times' uh, correspondent in Cuba, a man, a man named Herbert Matthews, who had been friendly with Ernest Hemingway, um, he goes to Cuba and finds this romantic figure, Fidel Castro, who is all but defeated at that point in time, who's got very few men left, almost no weapons, no money, hiding out in the mountains. And this guy sees in him a, a democratic savior, a messiah, political messiah of Cuba. Didn't matter that Castro was, ran an incompetent regime for the next 50 years, a dictatorship that failed and failed and continues to fail to this day, to the point that we're seeing protests on the street at, you know, at the risk of people, people risking their lives and their livelihoods to protest. Um, but that's what the New York Times declared. And they declared it so much and so loudly that it worked. He, Castro became that thing and came back to the New York Times on three separate occasions to thank them for what he did for them, for, for him. Um, so that, that is really where you have someone coming in and telling, sort of spinning a yarn, telling a great story that he wants to tell, even when it has nothing to do with the truth. And I, that happened over and over in the book. In Vietnam, that was certainly the case with David Halberstam telling this great story that he thinks should be true about the South Vietnamese government, but really wasn't true. I mean, the reporting on the so-called massacre of Buddhist monks by the South Vietnamese government, 38 monks or something massacred. That was the story that the New York Times printed. When there was an investigation done, turns out it wasn't 38 monks that were killed. It was zero. There were no monks killed. And this becomes something that's implanted in people's psychology. They read in the New York Times one time that 38 monks were murdered by this regime. You're not going to erase that thought no matter what you do. And in that case, they didn't do anything. They didn't correct that story or retract it. They just left it as it is. That's the danger of folk psychology is that it becomes seared in people's minds and they can't get rid of what to the journalist was just, you know, a nice story, an important story, a great story, but not the true story, no matter how inconvenient or boring that truth might be. And the temptation is so great. And when you compound it with a media organization that's really trying to make money and to increase its power and prestige, then it amplifies that effect and that phenomenon becomes catastrophic. And that's again, what we've seen in, in the instances we talked about today.
0: Yeah, and, and another trend that I've noticed with uh, the reportage of New York Times. So, so I I, I draw two two uh, two separate areas. One is New York Times and its reportage when it comes to things inside America, mm-hmm. and then there is this whole world of New York Times and its reportage outside America. Mm-hmm. Now, I could relate to the bits where you you had a dedicated chapter where you talk about. The israel and palestine reportage is because it is literally how they report india mm-hmm. it, it, it's almost as if and i i don't know which which way i can present this but this is how i feel reportage about india happens and th- i'm just giving you an, uh, a uh drawing a picture so there must mm-hmm. be a few people in the new york times office so all right man so how are we gonna report india It's like, I don't know. You tell me, okay, who are the bad guys? Who are we supposed to hate? That is the place where they start from. Who are the bad guys and who are we supposed to hate? And then somebody within the left will tell them, okay, this guy Modi is the bad guy. Uh, Use the word Hindutva and then uh, start using fascist, uh, etc., etc., etc. And we just don't do anything else. And we keep repeating this ad nauseum. And eventually it is almost like uh, that that guy of hitler's what was his name Gobbles? or what was his name i forgot his name who was Goebbels. his minister of yeah Gobbles his communication his communication guy it's almost as if new york times has become that person itself and 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 obviously that's the case about the reportage with with israel but i, I had a very different question because you don't touch about it in the book so did they ever have a sympathetic view of Israel or the right of Israel to exist as a Jewish state ever in their history?
1: Um, Not that I, not that I know of distinctly. I'm, you know, I'm sure there were opinion writers. I mean, there is today, Brett Stevens. He's a columnist there who who is absolutely um, not just sympathetic. He's very supportive of Israel. So there have definitely been people in the organization that, that took a position like that. But as far as the newspaper as a whole, no. And and that might be, um, that's for sure, again, interest-based, interest-driven, because in the 1930s, when stuff was starting to heat up in Europe and in America, with anti-Semitism rising in the 1930s, they really did not want to be seen as a Jewish newspaper because they felt that would be bad for their business and it probably would have been bad for the business. So that led them to cover up the Holocaust. That's how far they were willing to go not to be seen as a Jewish newspaper. So taking a position where they were supportive of a Jewish state would have been even more. So, um, showing in their minds, showing them to be a Jewish newspaper. So on the interest side, and I think on an ideological side, they had a particular view, of what it meant means to be a Jewish, the, the Jewish people, what that means, whether that was a nation or a religion. And if you're a nation, that means the Jewish people are apart from and, and distinct from the American people. It's a nation unto itself. If you're a religion, on the other hand, then you just happen to go to a different church and call it a synagogue on Sundays or Saturdays in your case, but you're just you're an, you're part of the American people. And they, they were Sort of subscribing to this um, religious intellectual ideology that said, "No, you you're not a dis- you're not a distinct people. You're a religious. You're a, a just a, re- a faith, a, a way of worshiping," and that led them to oppose the creation of the state of Israel because the state of Israel is rooted in the idea that the Jews are a people, a nation, not just people that happen to go to a place called a synagogue on a Saturday instead of a church on Sunday. So, for ideological reasons, but also really for those interest. Driven reasons that that desire to stay on top, and that was the same period, if we remember, when they were trying to when they were keeping a Nazi collaborator collaborator in place as their Berlin bureau chief because they wanted to get those scoops. They wanted to stay number one. So that affected that desire to stay number one affected everything, and definitely would have affected the way they looked at and covered Israel. And it still does to this day. I mean, the the woke movement that is really part of their target audience of younger left-wing readers is not particularly Zionistic, I would say, to say the least. And New York Times covers the story accordingly. The coverage is getting, as bad as it's been traditionally, historically, it's it's getting much worse. They're becoming much less um, concerned about finding the story than about creating those kinds of narratives that are part and parcel of folk, folk journalism. So you know that that's definitely something that's happening.
0: Yeah, but you also touch upon a particular understanding of what it is to be a Jew in this mm-hmm. book in in yeah. the early in the first half of the book uh, from one of the owners, right? Uh, right from the top in the yes. New York Times. I, I honestly, I don't know. I come from a Hindu background, so my my upbringing is very non-Abrahamic. So. Uh, our, uh, I don't know how to put it, but my brains function very differently. Our brains think about, uh, you know, spirituality, religiosity, and all these things in a very different way. I, I could not understand why was he so. It's almost as if the person was very apologetic about everything, and mm-hmm. and, and there was an extra effort to hide that Jewish bit. And and in the extra effort, I will even try to kind of soften the blow over the Jews because of the Holocaust. What, what is this mindset? Why would a person go out of the way to do that just for the Jews?
1: Um, because that's a, it's a very Jewish mindset because the Jews, um, especially at, at that point in time before Israel had been established as a, as a political state, had been a de- diasporic people for thousands of years. For thousands of years, Jews lived in, in nations and countries that were not their own. They were, they were a guest in a host's land for, and again, we're talking from millennia. And that has some, an, a, an effect, a lasting effect, a, a defining effect on the psyche, on the collective psyche. And that psyche like is saying, listen, we, we know that persecution is just around the corner. So keep your head down, blend in. Don't stand out. Get along. Go along to get along. And, and that was very much a Jewish mindset. And that, that's really what, in part, helped the Jews to survive. Part of that is that within that framework, they were intensely um, identifying ethnically and religiously and nationalistically, uh, but never outside of the, the ghetto walls, never outside of the synagogue and the home. They tried to keep a low profile. And, and especially the German Jews, which is what the family... Who owned the time that the New York Times is what they were at that period in the 1930s. They came from a stock of German Jews, like I myself did, um, and German Jews were were had really fought hard to assimilate into German culture, and we're even talking well into the 19th century. They were fighting for basic rights, and we're talking about the rights to practice certain professions, to not pay taxes that were imposed upon them as Jews to trade in all uh, various areas of trade, to become doctors, et cetera. So their lives and their livelihoods depended on that ability to fit in, to assimilate and to prove to the German people that they were just as good Germans as any other German was. And they took that mindset and they transplanted it into America where you didn't necessarily have to think that way. You, you could, and they did, but you could think other ways. I mean, the, the American, The early Dutch colonial authorities gave the Jews unprecedented freedom. And then so did the British. And then so did the founding fathers when they created the constitution. The Jews could be something different. But by that point, the Jews that were coming there, and to a large extent, the uh, Western Ashkenazi Jews from Germany and from Poland and other places, did have either an assimilationist mindset, which is what the New York Times owning family had, or a keep your head down, keep quiet. Uh, keep apart mindset, which is what some of the Eastern European Jews came with.
0: Yeah. The, so the way you narrate it is actually reminds me of that book I had read a long time ago. It was I think it was Karen Brodkin who had written that book, How the Jews Became White and What Does It Say About Race in America? Uh, and there's another book the how the Irish became white. I was like, uh, Irish people are pretty white. Uh, that was my first question in, in my head. I was like, yeah. okay, even they were not considered white. So that, that's a very interesting bit about yeah. American history. But yeah, but that—that that is for some other day. Now, yeah. th- is this, again, th- this is not a question uh, per se about the book, but I don't know. I feel like I have to ask this. I have sure. noticed a trend again with <laughs> Indians in America. So Indians in America have this unique situation where whatever happens in India, average American culture expects Indians to answer I'll give you a, an analogy. Like my wife's born and raised in Canada. She's like what we call coconuts. She's brown outside, white inside. I don't know how, how else to say it. So we use that term. Brown people use that word for se- separating between us and them. It's like they're coconuts and we're, we're just brown folks or brown. So you know, I always used to find this very interesting where like, folks like my wife, if they're living in Canada or America, it's as if they have to answer for what Modi did in India. Why? They have nothing to do with Modi. In most cases, they may not even care about Modi. Is that the case with Jews, too? Or Jews have kind of progressed out of that? uh, And because I'll give you an example. Uh, Italians are not supposed to answer for Italian politics in America. Germans are not supposed to answer for what Angela Merkel is doing in Germany. Nobody is going to go around. Hey, German, come here. Why is Angela Merkel doing this? But there seems to be a special case for Indians where they have to answer for everything Modi does. So is mm-hmm. that the case for Jews in America? They have to answer for everything Israel does?
1: More and more, yes, that's becoming the case. It never used to be the case. It didn't. It used to be that you, generally the Jews in America were, were supportive of Israel. Um, some were very critical and some took it on themselves to answer for Israel when they, no one asked them to. They just decided they wanted to do that. So we, generally in a critical way, sometimes not. But I think what we're seeing around the world is that's increasingly becoming the trend with specific with specifically regard to Jews is that they're being held to account in Paris, in London, in wherever, Madrid in all around the world for actions committed by the state of Israel and sometimes not even actions committed by the state of Israel, sometimes actions that are that are just invented lies being told about Israel. And that responsibility is being foisted upon Jews all around the world. And from the one hand, you look at it and you're saying, hey, that is a bit racist. I mean, in, in a sense, like you're treating these people as if they are not a part of your society. Why Why are you doing that? I mean, what, on what basis? Um, on the other hand, I say to myself, well, maybe there's a point there. It's not the point those people are intending to make. But the point is that the Jews are a nation, in my belief. We we have a shared history that is unique and we, are, we have have you know, culture, cuisine, language, poetry, uh, art that connects us as a Jewish people. That's, you know, it's a mosaic of people. It's not, we're not monolithic or homogenous, but so maybe there is something to it, but I do think in the way that it's wielded as a political tool, as a tool of division, there's a racist element to that because again, you're saying you are not an American, you are this other thing. I'm not I'm not sure what you are, but you're this other thing, and I'm gonna hold you to account for that, for being that thing. And um, yeah, that that I think that's a, a horrible thing to, to do to anybody.
0: I think the only solution for this is that I guess Italy, you're the entire uh, EU nation should have right-wing outfits. I think everybody will have the same treatment then.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that is probably what it will take. Like for, for people like, what's going on, Brits, with you, uh, expat Brits with Boris Johnson?
0: Yeah, I guess that's the case. Now, uh, Ashley, I have to ask this question because I think it's, it's very important to maybe question the narrative in the book. So, Ashley, what if somebody came to you and presented this scenario to you? So... Mm-hmm. Ashley, you're being unfair in, you know, you know, focusing on the New York Times. You have to look at the, you know, the entire coverage of New York Times. Uh, Yes, maybe they have gotten a few things wrong here and there. And maybe, you know, if we did a larger meta-analysis, they get far more things right and far less things wrong. So you may be overblowing a little bit. Would you do... Or have the same standard for other publications, or maybe right-wing publications. So, what would your answer to that be, Ashley?
1: Um, yeah, you know, listen, uh, that might very well be the case. That might be the case that um, the the majority or the vast majority of the coverage is is good and on on point. But I think there's a bigger there's a bigger question, is a bigger topic here, which is that we have to look at what happens when you have. A, a corporation controlling our understanding of reality and a self-interested corporation, one that has disproportionate power controlling our understanding of reality. That's the bigger picture. Even if they're getting, you know, the, the stories about um, a precinct, a police precinct in what New York down lower Manhattan had this happening or that had, the weather report being this or that, because what you see is that once people realize that they have a means to make the truth into a weapon, not only will they continue to wield that weapon, but other people will start to see that they can pick up the truth and use it as a weapon themselves. And that's exactly what we're seeing happen around the world. We're starting to see just a casual notion of having alternative facts, as someone on the right said uh, not so long ago. We have our own alternative facts, and that's an idea... Again, we come back to that relativism that came from a, a, a way of looking at the, at the world that the New York Times is not just pushing, it's embodying. Again, with the 1619 Project, they are showing the world that the, the objective truth is not as important as the political subjective version of the truth. And people are learning to our all of our detriment. They're learning that they too can use the truth as a club. So I'd say, okay, so maybe the Times is doing great reporting. And I do believe that they are because, like I said before, there's a difference between the, re- the excellent reporters, editors, photographers who are, who are manning that ship and the, cap- and the owners of that ship, not even the captain, the owners of that ship who are not even on the ship. They, are, they have two different sets of interests. One, on the one hand, is to sail the ship well, keep her safe, keep her from colliding with others, get to the destination. And for the others, the purpose of the ship is to make money. Get the cargo from point A to B. I don't care how dangerous it is. I don't care how what kind of crazy stuff you have to do. Get my cargo there and get me paid. And that's the owners of that of that paper. So I hope that that study would find that the New York Times is 90% accurate, 90% honest. I would expect that to be the case. But that 10% can have a huge impact on our world. That 10%, when we look at the New York Times' coverage of lab leak, the theory that COVID-19 leaked from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. For one and a half years, they didn't just say it wasn't possible. They attacked anyone who even questioned it. And you say to yourself, wow, that kind of power attacking that with that level of viciousness. And, and, and as you used the term before, ad nausea, not just once or twice, not just three or four times, dozens and dozens of times and dozens of formats and mentions and opinion pieces and news reports. They went after this theory, this notion that if you believe in lab leak, if you even questioned it, you are a racist. You're a racist who is peddling a conspiracy theory. And we're talking about lives at stake here. This virus has killed 4 million people. What if we had come into it straight away in January 2020 with the New York Times saying, hold on people, it's possible that this was a lab engineered virus that might be not just like the flu that we were all saying in the beginning, but a super virus, something that was that gain of function technology had been applied to, making it that much maybe we all, all would have said, wait a second, let's take this thing a little bit more seriously. Let's stop the flights today instead of waiting four months. But that's not what happened. The New York Times acted in its own interests, those interests being business interests in China and connections to the Chinese government. And they denied it in the effect, they 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 affected the way this virus unfolded. And that might only be one story out of thousands of stories that they did that with, but it really, really mattered. And that's what I, that's what I would say in response to that hypothetical that you brought.
0: So, so Ashley, uh, before, before we conclude the discussion, I, I think I have to ask this question. I think I owe it to my listeners and viewers. Sure. Do you see any scope of redemption for the New York times? Because obviously they seem to be in bed with an ideology that, that is a new religion. I, I call Vokism Abrahamism without uh, the God and without redemption. Because mm-hmm. uh, at least Abrahamic religions had redemption. You could redeem yourself. Vokism, mm-hmm. there is no scope of re- redeeming yourself. If you're mm-hmm. damned, you are in hell forever. And you not only you, anybody that touches you is yeah. going along with you. <laughs> yeah. Now, let's take the example of, uh, I don't know how to pronounce her name. Is it Barry Wise or Bari Wise? I'm not mm-hmm. sure about that. But... Yeah. Uh, Look at her case. She's your regu- regular left-of-center uh, liberal, in in, yeah. in in who votes who would most likely vote for the Democratic Party in a in the American exper uh, in political landscape. Even she's not good enough for the New York Times. Now, if a person like her is not good enough for the New York Times, do you see any scope of redemption for that for that organization, mm-hmm. or if they cannot be redeemed? What is the solution in that case?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question, and I, you know, I, I don't see it. I don't really don't see it um, that much potential for redemption because they don't practice redemption. You know, redemption requires repentance. Redemption requires one to reflect openly, publicly on failings, and then to make the changes. That, you know, and, and without that, you there is no redemption. Without that kind of honest effort. And they don't do that. They, you know, they published a thousand names, the names of a thousand people who died of COVID um, in America at a time where, you know, that was a that was a veiled political attack on, on Donald Trump. But they have never done such a thing for victims of the Holocaust, which for six years, they all but covered up. And if they were seeking redemption, they would say, let's, okay, fine, do the COVID thing, but do the Holocaust thing. Let's acknowledge that we covered this up. Let's not just do one article about it in 1970, which they did. Let's make this a full issue of the magazine like we did for the 1619 Project. Let's talk about the weaker slavery in China that's happening today. Not just the slavery that happened in America 100 or 200 years ago. Slavery of a whole people is happening before our eyes. They haven't changed. They don't change. And I don't think they want to change because the ownership hasn't changed. And the prerogatives of that same ownership remains unchanged. So I don't see why there would be any kind of shift there. But what I do see is people who used to be New York Times institutional stalwarts, you know, those those kind of readers that their parents read that paper, their parents' parents and parents' parents' parents, you know, a New York Times family, or people who just all, all they wanted in life was to be a New York Times reporter. Those people are turning away from the Times. They're saying, wait a second, something's going on here. And not just with the New York Times, but with the entire media establishment. And we now have tools to say, I'm not gonna just take this in a browse modality, kind of a lean back, whatever Walter Cronkite tells me in the evening news, I'm gonna accept. We're saying, no, this is actually a new era for media and for information. It's lean forward. It's search to say, wait a second, this issue is interesting to me. I need to go find my facts myself. Corroborate them, be responsible, look for good sources, but don't just take it, the New York Times and, and company, as gospel truth. We can't do that anymore. And I think that's the real hope for the future, to say we're redefining what media is. We're redefining what news is, what journalism is. We have major journalists like Barry Weiss or like Andrew Sullivan, Matt Taibbi and Glenn Wald, who are no longer working at a news organization. They're, right. work, they're running their own substacks. And they're doing amazing stuff, so I think that's kind of where things are going. And you know, as biology has pointed out, and has kind of opened my eyes to a bit, which is the role that um, crypto can play in this equation, and, and hopefully will have that role to play once we make greater progress, And not the we, not including me, the more general we, because it's not something that I yet understand sufficiently well. But I think that's where the future is, is independence. The concept of independence the practice of independence
0: so so would you say that the the truth can only be protected when there is independence uh which is why we have tenure in in academia right because the the whole concept behind tenure was that for an academic to pursue the truth no matter where it falls and no matter how much it hurts anyone they need job security and that job security can only come through tenure. So, So maybe journalism becomes like Uber, where let's say there is a localized incident happening somewhere. And just like your app where you just put your location on and Uber gives you a driver that is in that vicinity, picks you up and takes you there. So maybe news has to go somewhere like the Uber model where, okay, so I'm in Mumbai uh, in this suburb. Now there's this local guy who follows the local news in this suburb so if I want to know the truth about it, I ping that guy and that guy goes and picks it up, does the report and then that guy pay, gets paid independently and that's how we save the truth and that is the tenure for journalism then?
1: I think that could be one strand and that, that, that model particularly sounds very, very exciting when you think that there is someone who's just covering a neighborhood, a suburb, um, a small municipal region because that guy can do it better than anyone and the truth of the matter is that Without that model in place, probably nobody's going to be covering that that little region, that micro region. There's just not the financial structure in place. The, the institutional model doesn't allow for it, and that's why the the so one of the big storylines in media of the last ten or twenty years is that local journalism, local news, is dying in America. It is um, because institutional models can't support it when they don't. When they're, no, they're no longer flush with cash as they once were when they had big subscriber bases. And print advertising. Now with digital advertising uh, driving down advertising rates and subscribers kind of, you know, they're, they're having to rebuild their subscriber base on digital, you don't have enough money to pay all those people to do local journalism in all these different places. But if you had a ground-up model like that, a crowdsourced model that could say exactly like what you just said, which is say, okay, we, you know, there's some reason for to do some coverage in the little you know, Emek Hefer region of Israel where I live. Let's have an Emek Hefer uh, news, news agent here. Let's have him writing some good stories about it. Or and, and it could be flexible enough to say, maybe we'll move him to the next region over if the stories dry up here. So I think that's one part of it. I don't think we really know yet where this is all going. The Substack model is in one model. The YouTube model is another model. Programs like yours, shows like yours, because... We we have to keep in mind that a lot of what you're getting in the New York Times or any other journalism outlet is analysis, assessment, and commentary, and we value that. But now we don't need to go to only in the New York Times for that. We can come to a podcast like yours and hear this conversation being sort of drawn, born out, and and understand the issues in a different way. So I think it's this great um, kind of fracturing of the media landscape in a good way. You know, I was just watching this excellent documentary about um, the information paradox about black holes and how the researchers you did satellite imagery imaging of a black hole the way they did it is that because in order to capture a black hole in an image you would need a satellite that's as big as the earth which we obviously can't do so instead they had eight satellites all around the world coordinate a sort of scan of a black hole and then collate the data together and that kind of collaborative, decentralized approach to creating a picture is really exciting and it really can produce better results as they proved it that it was really successful, that experiment. So I think that's what we're seeing with media today. Go here for this. Go here for that. Find these facts over there and these over here. Put the picture together for yourself. And I think that that is generally the concept that we'll be looking at in the future.
0: Yeah, I I actually agree with you. And honestly, somewhere down the line, I believe we are being trapped or coaxed into having opinions on things far more than we were used to before. Look, we were not bombarded with so much information. We are opinion making machines, if you ask me. We have opinions on things all the time. Mm -hmm. But the thing was, before social media, we were not bombarded with so many things to opine on. So our Mm -hmm. brains used to have a rest. Yeah. our brains for us, in my opinion, as a species, we need to get used to this new reality where we need to learn the art of not caring. Sometimes mm-hmm. you just don't have to care. And yeah. I think maybe this is the, the, the experiment that is running and I don't know how it's going to end, but I think you make very valid points and we need to adjust to this new reality. I totally agree with you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great, that's a great way to put it. The art of not caring because you know, exactly what you're saying 20, 30 years ago, really before cable news, before the 24 hour news channel was introduced to the world, you only had, you know, the nightly news and the newspaper so that you had the newspaper in the morning it was printed once or maybe twice a day. And then you had a, a slot for the nightly news of half an hour, hour or whatever it might be. That's it. That's a very small band to deliver information with. And then when you had cable news and 24 7 news become a reality, that ban became a lot wider. And then when you had digital news, which meant every website in the world could contain unlimited amounts of information virtually, that ban no longer existed. If There is no more limitations on information and, and what were presented as information, which most of the time is not information. It's just a solicitation of our attention. And nothing does that better, exactly as you point out, than wanting us to opine, wanting us to feel as if we can exert our power, our effect on whatever it might be, even though it has nothing to do with us. And what's going on downstairs outside is much more important and much more neglected by us. You know, a neighbor who might be in need of our help or a local issue that might be something we could actually influence, whether it has to do with a school or a park around us, Those are the kinds of changes that we actually can make, but we neglect them because social media has gotten very good at monopolizing our attention and monetizing it. And the news is, you know, the news industry and the media industry loves to blame tech. They love to say it's Google, Facebook and Apple that's doing this. But the hard reality is that they are the ones who perfected this over the course of at least the last century of Mm -hmm. grabbing your attention. Grabbing, you know, with the the metric that we talk, that advertisers talk about is eyeballs. They want your eyeballs. You know, as grotesque as it sounds, that became a normalized ner- term, a notion that advertisers and media is is grabbing at your eyeballs. And there's no better way to do that than a story of blood and guts and gore and enmity and war and poverty. And that's the kind of news that we've gotten for the last who knows how long, maybe forever. But certainly that's what we're getting today. Division. Division really sells in, news, in the news industry. Well,
0: oh, I agree with you. I think uh, the only reason these big media conglomerates are pissed off at big tech is they don't like competition. Nothing else. <laughs> they yeah. just hate it. Yeah, They, they, they it, don't exactly. like competition. Uh, so, Ashley, before I let you go, could you tell us a little bit about any future project that, that you're going to be working on?
1: Uh, yes. I'm. So I've got a novel coming. I, I've written a novel. Um, I spent eight years writing a novel sort of after I wrote this book. Um, And it's about um, it it was inspired by my experience I had when I I went to search for what happened to my best friend who disappeared and uh, and ultimately died in Nicaragua. And I went to Nicaragua to try to trace his steps and understand it. And as I was there, I had an idea for a story and I wrote it based in Nicaragua, based in the place where he was. Um, A novel will come out. um, And then after that, more writing, more videos, more research about things like the New York Times' role in Lab Leak and um, subsequent projects after that. I've got a couple more books, including one that will take me to India, God willing. And wow. um, yeah, I, I have a, a, my grandmother was a South African businesswoman, and most of the business she did in import export was with India. So she traveled to India um, close to 40 times in her life. She told me, would come back and always tell me these beautiful tales of India, and she called it the soul of humanity. Um, And she also, her proudest moment in her career was receiving an award from an Indian trade association. So I I feel like I I would love to go and research. It's a story that requires a lot of research. It's about a monk, a Tibetan monk um, in India. Um, And that will also be in the pipeline somewhere probably in the next uh, five years if things go well.
0: Uh, that sounds like a, a great plan, and I look forward to your visit to India. Hopefully, uh, you know I could uh, I could be part of your of your journey and help you out in uh, whatever way. But guys, really before, we, uh, before we end today's discussion, I I want to end by reading an excerpt. This, these were the last words of Ashley's book, and and and, and I'll tell you why I'm reading this is because. Anybody who's a regular listener or viewer of this podcast knows that I'm a moral objectivist. I believe in objective standards. I'm not a subjectivist. And I have explained myself a lot of times. And the reason I fell in love with this book is because what came out to me from this book is that Ashley cares about the truth. Ashley cares about objective standards. He cares about these things. So and, and I think nobody could have put it better where, you know, he says our history is shared and our humanity is shared with it. To believe that the truth is, in quotes, mine is to believe it does not exist, but it does. And this is where each of us bears a responsibility that grows more important every day. Just as we have a responsibility to safeguard our environment, our neighborhoods and our communities, we have a responsibility to safeguard truth and history so they will be shared resources for generations to come and not the purview of a small subset of special interests looking to make far too much of the present. I, uh, I think this was the best way to put, put, uh, put across why we should care for the truth. So Ashley, once again, thanks a lot for writing this book and coming on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure. I've read your book twice. I, I, I absolutely loved it and looking forward to many more discussions with you in the future. Thank you, Krishal. Thank you
1: so much. I'm really honored. And and, um, this is great. I appreciate you having me here. And I also look forward to talking again.
0: All right, guys, time to wrap today's discussion up. If you want to buy Ashley's book, I'm going to leave the link to purchase the book in the description of the podcast, along with Ashley's Twitter handle. Please follow him on Twitter. Buy the book. Not only should you buy this book, you should gift it to people. It is a must read book. And believe me, as an Indian, if you read this book, The second thing that should come in your mind is, should I be doing this with the Times of India? I think we should. Somebody needs to do this with the Times of India and look at the history of Times of India, where they have bent when they're not supposed to bend. And maybe we'll get a lot of answers. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the channel, like the video, leave a comment there, become a member on YouTube or subscribe on Patreon, buy the merch or send your donations via UPI. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, take care.